We'll get out your Bibles this morning. We'll be turning to Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 52. Mark 10, 35 through 52. As you turn there, I was reminded, the last few years, if you're a sports nut, you've heard people talking about goats. Now, the first time I heard that, I thought, well, these must be talking about those who, uh, under pressure, wilted and cost their team either a game or a championship or something like that. Then it was explained to me that GOAT was actually an acronym. They're talking about the greatest of all time, the GOATs. Who is the GOAT of this or the GOAT of that, the greatest of all time? Now, here, of course, is ambition. Is it not? And none of us are immune from it. As we read this passage, we're reminded that all of us, even the disciples closest to Jesus, fell prey to this desire of ambition. Follow along as I read two sections here, the first about James and John and their requests, the second about blind Bartimaeus, who was healed by Jesus. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who, for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So we consider this passage, God's word, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, unlike the things of this world, your word shall never pass away. It is true, it is inerrant, it is infallible. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray that everything thought here, done here, said here would be consistent with it. 
or else pass away and never be heard from again. Give us ears to hear it and hearts to understand it, that by your spirit we might apply it to our lives, not only for understanding, but for the actions to which you call us in your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was reminded up here as I came up this morning, I found this power cord up on my pulpit. And here I was reminded of power. We all crave power sometimes. And it's interesting, it's no different here. Last week, my best advisor and my critic turned to me in our comfortable chairs in our living room. And she said to me, don't talk about your preaching just preach. Last Sunday I said a couple times in the sermon, I said, if you know anything about my preaching, that was the wrong thing to say. I don't want you to know about my preaching, I want you to know about the word that is preached. She was exactly right. You see, what we often do, not even realizing it, is we draw attention to ourselves. Political candidates, I remember Bob Dole in Kansas. He referred to himself in the third person all the time. And so do some current candidates. Celebrities push their brand. After all, who do they put on their brand? They put their own name on it to draw attention to themselves. Even pastors, we want to have the best illustrations, the most converts, name recognition, and more. Do we want power? from Jesus, or are we simply asking him for help for our needs? You see, he calls his people, and he places them in the kingdom as he would have them be. There are two types of calls here in this passage. One is to the Son of Man who saves, or who serves, rather. The second is to the Son of David who saves. Now, the first call to Jesus from those disciples, James and John, their call is not necessarily for Jesus or for them to serve Jesus. They want Jesus, in a sense, to serve them. This is a request of ambitious desire. Now, you have to understand who James and John are. We would today say they're men with privilege. And yes, I'm using that word intentionally. They were sons of thunder. They were connected. In fact, when we get to the book of John, the gospel tells us that John, one of those disciples, he actually had connections with the priesthood. He had an open door when Jesus' trial was going on where he could go into the priestly courtyard because of his connections with the priesthood. They were in the inner circle of disciples, you know, Peter and James and John. They got to see things the other disciples didn't get to see because Jesus called them into that inner circle. They had family ambition and reputation. They were known as the sons of Zebedee. Their father is mentioned more than any of the other disciples' fathers, I think, in the Gospels. And they also had this reputation as being sons of thunder that, that in one place, going through the villages of Samaria, they said to Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? 
And of course, Matthew tells us it wasn't just James and John that were asking this of Jesus, to be seated on the right and left of Jesus when he came into his kingdom and glory. Their mother came and did it for them. So here probably what has happened is they're asking this, and their mother is also there asking this at the same time. Talk about ambition and privilege. What are they asking for? They're asking for positions of power. After all, what does it mean in verse 40? But to sit in my right hand or my left, Jesus says, or for the disciples themselves, James and John in verse 37, grant us or give us, that's really the term here, grant is a, is a rather forgiving way to, to express what they're saying. They're actually saying, give us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. This is a position of power. It's kind of funny how they did it. First of all, they come up to Jesus and they say, basically, we want you to do what we ask. I don't know, I, I, as a parent, if my child comes up and says that to me, sometimes it kind of bristles me a little bit. <laughs> And I think sometimes if, if, any, if we have anything to give somebody else, even if they were to come up to us and say, give me what I want, you know, that's not really the way to ask for stuff, is it? And it's interesting what Jesus does. He doesn't say, well, how dare you ask me that kind of question. He says to them, what do you want me to do for you? In other words, he makes them articulate their shameful desire. <laughs> it wasn't just... Give me whatever we want. He says, okay, what do you really want? Say it in front of everybody. And they did. Here's what they say. Make us your two top men. Now remember, there's 12 of them. By this point in Scripture, this is now the third time that this kind of thing has happened. First, they were arguing about how, who was the greatest amongst the disciples. And, and then all of a sudden here, they're coming before Jesus and they're saying in front of everybody, we want you to acknowledge that we are the best amongst the twelve. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't say, how dare you ask that question, no, that's ridiculous, or you are all equal, or whatever it is. Instead, he says this, you do not know what you are asking. And so it gives them an explanation of kingdom authority. First of all, it says, he says this, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now it's interesting what they say. You know, we can. <laughs> they have no idea what they're getting into. But what does he mean by this? Of course, in the Old Testament, when it talks about the cup here, Usually it's speaking of the cup of God's wrath. Sometimes, too, it's a reminder of the cup of suffering. So either it's going to be judgment upon you because you deserve it, or it's going to be suffering even vicariously for someone else, or, ba or basically suffering because you live in a world tainted with sin. Whatever that suffering is, he says you're going to be drinking this cup. And he's referring to suffering. And he turns this 
concept of give us power into a reminder of the cost of discipleship. That's what he does in all three instances here. Now the third time where the disciples are looking to gain power from Jesus, he instead turns it around to, to remind them of the cost of coming to follow him. They say to him, we are able. Now, you can't fault John and James for not having courage. You can't fault them for not having loyalty. In fact, I think all these disciples at some point or another were very loyal to Jesus in this time of ministry. Remember, they didn't have a lot of power and influence. In fact, all through this time, there were people out to get them, in a sense, the scribes and the Pharisees were setting traps. There were others that were trying to belittle Jesus. But he says this, you will, you will do these things. Now we know James, his ministry did not last very long. He was beheaded. The first of the disciples that we know of to be martyred. John would live a long life. In fact, perhaps longer than any of the other disciples, but tradition tells us he was persecuted in many ways, exiled at one point. In fact, there's some tradition that said at one point he was dropped into a burning cauldron of oil and survived. We don't know exactly how John died, but they would suffer. So Jesus didn't say automatically, no, I'm not going to grant you that. I'm not going to give you those things. Instead, he says this. To sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. In other words, it had already been granted. They were asking something that Jesus couldn't give them. It had already been determined. He didn't say, no, it's not you. It's kind of funny here. They're cutting out the spokesman, Peter, undermining his responsibility or his uh, efforts as a leader amongst the disciples. They haven't even met Paul yet, who might be one of those individuals. We don't know who's going to sit at the right and the left of Jesus, but we do know this. He says this in a sense to remind them it is a calling. It is not an, a response to prideful ambition. It is not what they thought. It was. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. What they thought it was, was a position like a prime minister or a president or someone that had a cabinet position and had great influence and had the opportunity perhaps to be like those in Scripture that were called out in a particular nation to say they were second in command of the kingdom only to the king would they not have authority. But it's not what they thought it was. In fact, he's actually confronting here their ambition with his own submission 
When he says it's not mine to grant, remember, this is the one who is reigning on the throne forever. And yet he realizes it's together with the Father and the Spirit that they have planned out these things in the kingdom from all eternity. He says it's not a Gentile lordship. Don't we need to hear that today? If you know American history, you know that our first president was George Washington. You know that in those days when they were just beginning the government, they didn't know if this experiment would work. They had gone through this expensive war. Their military was a shambles. They probably could not have defended against Britain if they'd come back and fought them again. In fact, they had very little opportunity to really defend themselves as a nation. And the nation wasn't really a nation yet. It was a series of states that didn't understand what it was to have federal power. And they were bucking against that in many ways for good or bad. But they all agreed there was one man to lead the country, George Washington. Now, George Washington, he was a man. He had ambition like everybody else. But he submitted to their idea for leadership. In fact, he said, this isn't necessarily a position I crave or desire, but because I want to serve my country, therefore I will be the first president. And they convinced him to run again for a second term, of which he did. Did you know it was the very next presidency of John Adams, where the country turned around from being a servant-led government to being party politics? In fact, the party politics started under George Washington when the Federalists were interested in expanding the role of the federal government and those in Thomas Jefferson's camp and others wanted to buck against that trend in order to stop the expansive federal government. And so they began this party politics. Hamilton and Jefferson, probably the most influential people on in the cabinet of George Washington, hated each other. They were striving for power. The Federalists got a, another term in John Adams, but John Adams and Hamilton did, did not get along with each other. They hated each other, so much so that their party fall, fell apart so that the Jeffersonians won the day in the next election, and they would have reign over the government for years afterwards, so that the Federalist party would never gain strength again was all about ambition and power. If you read some of the things that took place in those times, you would think, well, all those starry-eyed ideas of those servants in the American government in the early days, I can't believe all the bickering and the hatred and the vitriol, all, all of the things that were going on to try and ruin the reputation of other people. It was all about, in some ways, ambition and power. And they all had it. Jesus says, my kingdom is not like that. Thank God. His kingdom is not like that. And of course, where are we today? It's all about power and ambition. It's all about when a new person comes to office by the stroke of a pen, by fiat and executive order, he's changing all these things that the previous presidents had done. 
and Congress. What is it about? So often it's not about the good of the country. It's not about the good of the people. It's not about service. It's about maintaining power and control so we can get it over everybody else. That's not what sitting on Jesus' right and left is. It's not a Gentile lordship. It's also not a position of earthly honor. When we look at earthly honor, we think of those raised up on a pedestal. We think of those that have all kinds of responsibilities and power and influence over others. We think of those who've had great achievements, perhaps rising up from the bottom to the top, and we honor them, sometimes even to the point of reverence and worship. But Jesus says that's not what it's about. Verse 43, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Kingdom authority is modeled by humble service. God's kingdom is about service and sacrifice. He says, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You see, it's intentional that he uses two different words here. The word for servant, the word deacon, by the way. So he's six deacons out there. Be reminded, this is the word here for servant. You must be your servant. Whoever be first among you must not just be a servant. A servant in those days would have some rights and privileges. In fact, the servant here sometimes would even have the responsibility of the entire household. A servant would ne not necessarily be the lowest of the low. He could be someone with almost as much authority in the household as his master. But he says the other word here. Slave. This is the lowest of the low. This is the one who has no rights, no privileges. Now these slaves could also rise up and have authority over other slaves, but these slaves had, had nothing. And he says, if you would be great in the kingdom of God, you must be slave of all. In other words, no rights or privileges ahead of anybody else in the kingdom. Not only a servant, but a slave. Jesus is our model. He became our slave. No rights, no privileges. All serving us, serving the Father, so that this next verse, the key verse perhaps of the entire book of Mark, could take place. Verse 45 says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Gave new meaning to the Son of Man. The Son of Man here, when they understand this term, they're perhaps thinking of Daniel 7 or other places, Ezekiel perhaps, some other places in the Old Testament, particularly referring to the one who would inherit an eternal kingdom. They're thinking of power and glory and all of those things that are to come. And they think when he uses this term, he's placing on himself this term that refers both to kingdom authority, but also to his humanity. And then in a sense, also to the understanding of the Messiah who was to come. 
And first of all, reminded this Son of Man has a unique mission. It cannot be repeated by everybody. This humble service that he models, we can emulate the humble service to do the things that God calls us to do. Maybe God has called you to serve someone else by helping them with some mundane tasks. Maybe God is calling you to serve in a particular position in ministry and church. Maybe he's called you at times to give humbly of the resources that he's given you. We emulate Jesus in this sense. Everything we have, our power, our influence, our money, our reputation is God's, not ours. But we cannot emulate him in this. This is Mark's answer to why did Jesus come? Not to be served, but to serve. That's the first thing. A reminder that if he came to be served, he certainly would not have died on that cross. If he came to be served, he would ask everybody there, and rightly so, to come and bow their knee to him and worship him. But instead, this is what he came to do. To give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom. You know, this is the only time this particular Greek word is used in the entire New Testament. It's here and in the accompanying passage, the same passage in Matthew. It means in place of or substituting for a purchase of somebody's life. When we pay a ransom, that means that we are paying or purchasing someone's freedom. And that purchase here is a vicarious substitution. He is, on our behalf, purchasing our lives. You see, our lives were forfeit. Do you understand what sin does? Why do we talk about sin so much? Because the Bible talks about sin so much. Well, why is it so important to talk about sin? It's because the wages of sin is death. And those who remain in their sin will go to eternal punishment. It's called hell, where the worm does not die and the fire does not stop. This is what all of us deserve. And the only way, the only possible way for us and our lives to be redeemed or purchased is by someone to take our place. That's Jesus. When Jesus came and suffered and died on that cross, he took our sins upon him and he suffered in our place so that our lives would be purchased and ransomed. It's also interesting what it says here, for many. Not for everybody. Not even for the majority. In fact, if we understand the term remnant in Scripture, we know that it's a great minority. Some of you have remarked on Sunday mornings how the traffic is so much easier. There's a reason for that. This is the Lord's Day. Our society says, well, this is the day I can just do whatever I want. I can sleep in. I can watch TV. I can do some terrible sin in my life. Whatever it is, I, there are no consequences. But for us who are in Christ, this is a life, a day of worship, of 
gathering together with the saints. This is when the streets should be crowded with cars. This is when all of society should be coming in greater numbers than at a football game. This is when everyone should be celebrating, but the problem here is Jesus came as a ransom for many and not for all. And of course, the reminder here is where this comes from. Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. Isaiah 53, 11 and 12 talks about the many. He says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that is Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. By using this terminology, Mark says this is the key verse to my entire gospel, is that Jesus came as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve. But he also came to save. This next section of scripture is so different. You go from those who have had the inner circle of Jesus, his attention for three years almost by this point. They've seen amazing and miraculous things. They have his teaching. They have his explanations of his parables. They have all of that together, even so much so that they can even ask that question of Jesus. Can we be with you on your right and left in your kingdom? And he comes to someone who is totally opposite. They're now at Jericho. They're about 18 miles from Jerusalem. They're on that journey to go into the city. And they run across on the outskirts Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, this son of David who he's going to refer to. And he requests merciful compassion from Jesus. Now, first of all, it's interesting, Bartimaeus is the only recipient of a miracle in the book of Mark that is given a name. It's the only named one. His name, Bartimaeus, is kind of ironic in a way. Bar means son of, just like Ben does. Ben something means son of. Bar something means son of. He's son of Timaeus. So it says Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. It's interesting, the word Timaeus is from the root family, which means honor. But he's a blind beggar. Ironic name. He's completely without status. He has this name, son of a man of honor. And yet he has no honor, no status, nothing. He cannot earn his living. He's completely dependent upon the grace and mercy of others. In their society, there's no welfare net. There's no social programs. There's no social security or disability or anything like that. He's completely dependent upon the mercy and grace of others to care for him and to give him funding. He has no status. When he begins to cry out, when he hears that Jesus of Nazareth had come, why Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus was a common name. This is the understanding. This is the one who's done all those miracles everywhere else. Even blind Bartimaeus has heard stories about what Jesus has been doing, particularly in Galilee by this point. 
And he cries out and says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And there you see all the people in the crowds who are so generous and thoughtful. They say to him, keep shouting and get his attention, right? No. Be quiet. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. He's hindered by this ambivalent crowd. In one moment, they're going to say, don't bother him, or, or else they're saying, be quiet. We want to hear what's going on ourselves. Bartimaeus, he's not going to care about you. This is what the disciples thought about bringing children to Jesus, isn't it? But he's unfettered in his plea. There's no stopping him. When the crowd says, be quiet, he says even louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. But did you hear that phrase? Son of David. This is the only time in Mark's gospel that that term's used. It's out of the mouth of a blind beggar. In one sense, there's, a, there's an understanding of the royal line here. He probably doesn't even grasp here that this is, this is the messianic hope that he's, he's attributing to Jesus the messianic hope of the line of David, the forever king. You have the power and the influence to do something about my condition. It's an amazing address, the son of David. It's royal, it's messianic. And he cries out again and again, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops. Jesus didn't have to pay attention to that. There were probably others that wanted his attention. We don't know why Bartimaeus, other than this, call him. This is a call from the Savior. Of course, not a, not a telephone call here. We don't have telephones. Call him. And the crowd says, take heart, get up. You know, this is the ambivalence of the crowd, ambivalency of the crowd, isn't it? At first they say, be quiet. We don't want you interfering with all this. And then when he calls them, they say, hey, get up. He wants you. He's calling you. Take heart. And how does he respond? He throws off his cloak and he leaps up. This is reckless abandon. Remember, this guy's blind. He can't see. He spent his whole life being careful and cautious where he's going because he has to be led around in places that are unfamiliar. In places that are familiar, he has to be cautious so that he doesn't trip and fall. It's reckless abandon. And this is before Jesus heals him. He's so excited to be brought to the attention of Jesus. Is this us? Are we that excited that Jesus is calling us? I, I think I've said it before, one of my favorite college moments. I was on a three-on-three -three basketball team that played in a three-on-three -three tournament. This wasn't even like the, 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 the championship game or anything, but we had a game that was against a two-time defending champion. This is a small school. So, so there was a defending uh, two-time champion of the three-on-three -three tournament who got to go and represent our college in intramural three-on-three -three basketball at the University of Kansas. And we just happened to have a great game. I was there with two football players. One was David, one was Joel, and, and they were the big guys inside, and I was the three-point shooter outside, and I couldn't miss that day. 
and we just hit every shot. They were hitting them down low. I was hitting them from outside, and if they, they guarded us, we, we even made more baskets. We won the game, and I remember David, the football player, what he did afterwards, he started running up and down that court yelling at the top of his lungs. I thought he'd gone crazy. You have to understand, I came from a non-demonstrative family. We don't do a lot of hugging and kissing and all that kind of stuff. I'm from a Midwestern, under, understated family. You know, when we say something like, that's okay, that means, well, that's pretty good. I come from the frozen, chosen Presbyterian mentality. We don't clap. We don't move. We don't do a lot of things. We don't raise our hands in the worship service. We don't do a lot of those things. But probably my favorite moment in ministry was a few weeks ago when Katie was baptized and people clapped. They weren't clapping for KD. They weren't clapping for me. They weren't clapping for our church. They were clapping for what God had done in her life to bring her to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be in reckless abandon. Are you willing to stand up here and sing when you can't sing a lick and you're out of tune? Are you willing at some time to realize this is the greatest moment of your life is to be able to worship the triune God because he has saved you from your sins? Do you understand this? When we come to worship, yes, I know my background is I'm not going to be very demonstrative, which kind of begs the question, how can he be so when he's preaching a sermon? It's because this is just so wonderful. That's the point, the joy of salvation. He had joy in coming to Jesus at all before he even got the healing. And then what does he say? Does he say like John and James, hey, can you make me the most powerful guy in your kingdom? No. Rabbi, let me recover my sight. A simple request for mercy. And Jesus said to him, go away, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. That's what it says here. I think there's more going on here than just recovering sight. And how ironic. Just in, in the previous section of chapter 10, we heard about the rich young ruler who had everything. He had influence, he had power, he had youth, he had all those things. And Jesus simply said to him, give up what you have and follow me. The guy went away sad. Here's a guy who has nothing. He's given his sight. Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And what was the response? Luke tells us that he gave glory to God and those around him also gave glory to God. But here he followed Jesus. He became a part of his larger entourage of followers. There were the disciples, but there was also this other group that would follow him. Assumedly, by now, they're amongst the pilgrims that are coming into Jerusalem. That's why there's a crowd there. They're on their way from Jericho down to Jerusalem, or up to Jerusalem. And here they are. They're gathered together to do this. And now, this man, Bartimaeus, probably they know his name according to the Gospel of Mark because he became a part of that group and followed Jesus. He didn't have anything that he had to give away. He didn't have anything to begin with. And so when he was healed here and Jesus said, your faith has saved you, then what better thing did he have to do than to follow Jesus? I think in some ways this is the tale of two calls. 
First of all, the call to follow Jesus. This is the effectual call. In essence, Jesus is saying here to Bartimaeus, not only am I going to save you, but come follow me. He said that to the rich young ruler, but he was not convicted of his sin, and he refused to do it, went away sad. This man, with all reckless abandon, threw off even his clothing and the restraints of those around him, and with joy he followed Jesus. This is the call to follow Jesus. But there's also a second call here. A call to our mission and place in the kingdom. James and John were right to seek that call. They were wrong to seek it in, as far as power and ambition. You see, our place in the kingdom is granted by the Father. He has designed for each one of us in his kingdom a specific role. That role is no more or less important than any other role in the kingdom. It is just as important for the person who prays for the church and is a prayer warrior, as for the person that teaches Sunday school and is in front of a hundred people. It's just as important for the person who is a giver and who has been given the gifts of giving or hospitality or those types of gifts which tend to be behind the scenes as it is for those people who preach and teach. We have a specific role. But with that in mind, it all comes back to this. The role of Jesus Christ was to save. Verse 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Without Christ, there is no church. Without Christ, there is no salvation. Without Christ, there is not this ransom. We are all doomed to an eternity of terrible, terrible things. But by God's grace... His son, in submission and service, willing to be a slave to the Father's plan, died on the cross on our behalf that he might call many to enter the kingdom by the work of the Holy Spirit. And he might call all who have responded to that call to specific places to do the works in advance which he has called us to do. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, help us not to be striving to climb on the backs of others and to climb up and seek to lord our positions over the world around us. Lord, help us to be reminded of your service to the kingdom, that we in turn might respond to your call and follow you and enjoy the place to which you have given us with this wonderful, rich jewel of Christian contentment that only your spirit can place within us. Lord, help us not only to enter your kingdom by your grace, but to find joy in serving there. In Jesus' name, amen.